venturing back to the early 20th century, it was both a time of immense scientific breakthroughs and, unfortunately, dark repercussions emanating from unchecked corporate greed. Today we delve into the heart-wrenching tale of the Radium Girls, whose experiences forever changed the landscape of workplace safety and corporate responsibility in the midst of rapid scientific advancements. The Radium craze began in 1903 when word got out about the mystifying miracle that was being used to successfully treat skin disorders. The new element seemed to have its own energy, its own life essence. And it was alleged that it was capable of transferring that life essence to us and making us better in the process. But radiation was just beginning to reveal its secrets. And the radium girls found themselves at the merciless intersection of discovery and exploitation. While grappling with severe health repercussions from extended exposure to hazardous radioactive substances, the Radium Girls boldly confronted corporations prioritizing profits over worker safety. Their ordeal exposed the grim realities of corporate misconduct and spearheaded the creation of essential protective regulations and agencies like OSHA, thereby shielding numerous workers in the subsequent years. Joining us for this enlightening discussion is Joe Campanelli from one of my favorites, The Story of Podcast. And together we navigate the significant ripples their story created, forever altering how we perceive the domains of science, business, and regulatory frameworks in the nuclear age. As we examine the grim heritage of early radiation experiments and the dark legacy left by the Radium Girls, we find relevance between the past and its present. But we also branch out further, touching on bigger themes related to science, business, regulation, and social reform in today's discussions. But find out for yourself in an episode I'm calling Radiant Lives and Dark Legacies, The Unseen Influence of the Radiant Girls. Watch out, you might get what you're after. Welcome to the With Jay Burke Show. My name is Jason Burke, and though I'm technically the host of this podcast, it's the guests who truly take top billing. This is a place for curious minds who enjoy civil and sometimes meandering conversation. If you appreciate a few laughs and want to come away with knowledge about subjects that aren't always easy to break down, then you're the person I want listening to this podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Joe Campanelli. Joe is a part of one of my favorite podcasts, which I've mentioned here many times before, The Story of Podcast. Joe, along with his co-hosts, take you on an incredible journey through the weird and fascinating topics they research and share what they find with you. Joe brings an array of impressive academic credentials to the table. With bachelor's and master's degrees in chemistry and physical chemistry, he has honed his knowledge in the scientific realm. Additionally, Joe's hunger for learning led him to pursue a master's degree in adolescent education, where he now serves as a dedicated chemistry and research teacher. Notably, he has also assumed the role of adjunct professor in chemistry and has been recognized as a published research scientist in the field of physical chemistry. I got through it, somehow. Joe, welcome to the show. It's really good to have you on. Thanks so much. Great to be here, man. Yeah. Obviously, we met a little while ago on your show, 
the story of podcast, and I've had Danny on. So I'm really excited to do this, and, and I'm excited to talk about this story because, you know, this is something more in the science realm, and I haven't really covered that as much as I'd like to anyway. Yeah, this covers my two favorite things, science and history, which are like my two passions. So being able to discuss the history with you and and then get into the actual science of it is going to be great. Yeah. I had to look it up. Physical chemistry. (laughs) I didn't know what that was until I looked it up, but it looks pretty cool. So you're dealing with the principles of physics involved in chemical reactions. Is that what it is in a nutshell? So if if chemistry wasn't boring enough, imagine adding (laughs) physics to it. And doing both together, yeah. That's, that's it, man. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, when you put the chemical reaction into it, it, it sounds pretty cool. <laughs> so you just always had a passion for science? Yeah, I think I always had a passion for science, always, you know, trying to figure things out and asking why and this and that. And I started my college as a, I think, an environmental science major and when I was a freshman. Eventually switched to biology eventually switched to chemistry <laughs> and really should have switched to physics, honestly, because my, my real passion that I didn't understand at the time was the, f- the physics of chemistry and stuff like that. So mm. my degrees are in chemistry, but I do have background in physics as well. So okay. it's the really nerdy, nerdy part, you know, <laughs> but yeah, I like it for some reason. Yeah. Hey, whatever draws you. Obviously I'm a big history guy and you know, Danny has been on the show. We've talked historical stuff many times so Danny uh, knows his stuff for sure oh he does yes you know you'd be surprised though I went on a podcast once and the guy he he had like a political podcast and it was just funny he I don't know how to say this nicely he didn't know anything (laughs) like I was teaching him stuff like he started talking about January 6th and he didn't know what was happening January 6th that people, you know, went in there. And he asked me a question. He goes, well, what happened that day or something? I thought he was being rhetorical. And I'm like, I I don't know. Tell me. (laughs) And he's like, no, no, I'm asking you because you seem to know this stuff. I heard something happen. I'm not sure. (laughs) I was like, you're talking about when they entered the Capitol? Or he's like, no, what were they stopping? You know, and I was like, why do you have a podcast? (laughs) But anyway. I digress. So, obviously, we are here to talk about the Radium Girls. So, it's a little bit of history, I would think, along with the science aspect of it. And this is something I know that you had wanted to cover for a while. So, I'm glad to get to do it here because it's a very interesting story. And for my New Jersey people, New Jersey is involved in this in a kind of unfortunate way, but... Yep. They are involved. I think my co-hosts are going to be a little mad at me for doing it here because I think we wanted to take this topic too. So, we, you might get it on the story of as well. We'll see. Yeah. Maybe next season. You know what? I found researching this that there's so much to it that you could, I mean, you could do a few episodes on this, I think, pretty easily. Sure. You know, just getting into the history of it and, and the aftermath and just everything leading up. I mean, I just, I just kept finding more and more on it, which, you know isn't weird for me. I tend to do that anyway, but deep diving. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I guess we could start with how radium came to be this valued commodity in our society. Right. So if you want to maybe explain a little bit how that works, you know, the um, discovery of it and how we discovery of the whole history of it. it. Yeah. Well, it dates back to the late 1800s. Two of my favorite scientists, the, the Curie team, Marie and Pierre Curie, were working on uranium. Uranium had previously just been discovered, and radioactivity had really just been discovered, which is 
this spontaneous decay of elements just, you know, by themselves. And the Curies were working on why does that happen? And is there other stuff that does that too? And they took lots of samples of uranium, which was readily available, and they were able to extract this new element, which was a million times more radioactive, and that was called radium. They named it radium because it gave off rays of radiation. And it seemed to be a magical discovery. It was a new thing. They had never seen or or witnessed anything like this before. It would glow by itself. It would react with other chemicals around it and cause uh, fluorescence. So it would actually glow this green color, which we still use today. Like when you watch The Simpsons, I was just watching it upstairs, actually. You know, that, that idea of nuclear power and the glowing green rods, that's a radium. That's where it comes from. We still have that image in our head of it, but that's a real thing. Um, and then they started to think about what could it do, you know, when, when a new discovery is made scientifically, it usually goes to the medical field first. Can it be used for anything medical? And the first medicinal uses of radium were on cancerous tumors. They were injecting radium into people who had skin lesions or tumors or cancerous growths, and they were actually seeing positive results. The radium was somehow curing the cancer which was, you know, magical for that time. So then they started saying, oh, radium is this miracle wonder drug and it can be used to do all these things. And it started being used not only in medicine, but in cosmetics. They would put it in water. You could drink radium water. And that was supposed to invigorate you, you know, and boost your sex drive and uh, make take 10 years off of your age. And then all this, it was like, it was a miracle thing. It was a wonder drug. Yeah, um, I, I did read something about the glasses laced with, uh, radium, like you're talking about, that they thought it was going to, you know, somehow make you 10 years younger or whatever it was. And then I, I read something about, I wanted to check if it was true, but they were talking about radium laced underwear to give you more vital- <laughs> vitality. <laughs> it's like, okay. Why not? Sure. Yeah. Just put it in everything, right? Just, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. They would have like bathhouses. You would go to the spa and you would, you would take a radium bath. You would sit in bath water with radium salts in it. And because it's radioactive, not only does it glow, it also gives off its own heat. So like the, you know, the water would get hot. It was like a hot, hot tub spa. And it wasn't boiling or anything, but people really were like invigorated by this. It was a cure-all. It was like I said, a wonder drug. And yeah, they didn't really understand the negative effects of it, but it, it was doing what it was supposed to do. It was being radioactive. And people thought that was a good thing for health and medicine at the time. Why? This is going back a little further than, than all this, but like what made them want to try it on patients? What was the theory behind that? I don't know where that came from. I know. So prior to this discovery was the discovery of x-rays and x-rays are so named because they didn't know what they were. So they just called them x-rays. They were just, you know, variable rays. And that name stuck around. And now we know that's radiation as well. Mm-hmm. So we knew that x-rays could be used medicinally. So they thought, well, this is another form of, of radiation. Maybe this could be used for something too. And like I said, it was being first used in, in tumors. I should say superficial cosmetic like skin growths and things that were on the outside of the body. They can inject radium into the skin on the surface level. And it was, it was actually curing, it was making the tumors go away, which was amazing at the yeah. time. 
you know, they didn't know the after effects of what that would do, but it was cure, you know, quote unquote, curing cancer at the time. Yeah. Well, in some ways, I mean, we're still using radiation therapy for, you know, any cancerous type of growths or, or anything like that in the body. Absolutely. So, yep. you know, obviously in small doses, it can be used and very targeted. Yes. Okay. And we don't use radium anymore. We use other yeah. uh, isotopes instead. Mm-hmm. But true. Like you said, it's, it's definitely much more safer. So the story gets interesting after that because obviously we were putting it into everything. And then from what I read with, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of correlated to World War One. The service members, they used to get watches and what they found was when they put the radium, I always want to call it uranium, but it's radium. That's radium. Radium in paint, it would make things glow. So from what I understand is they were painting the faces of the watch with this this paint that had radium in it to make it glow, and the service members loved it. And then there was a big, big need for that while World War One was going on. Yeah, so not only watches, but you're talking about instrument dials on, on vehicles, tanks, you know, not really airplanes at that time, but that was the future of it was an airplane machinery. This stuff could glow by itself, and, and you know, it was definitely going to be a benefit. So you had that industry booming, and then, of course, anything that goes to the military is going to trickle down to consumer level. So people said, well, I want a watch like that. I want a clock face like that. I want makeup that will make my skin glow. I want nail polish that will make my nails glow. You know, as we'll get into this story, these women were, were painting their teeth as well. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like the image of the time that you would glow with this radium glow. And that was like the hip thing. That was the cool thing to, to look like to go out on the town. in. it's kind of freaky, but yeah, it's wild style. Yeah. Yeah. It, well, you know, it's one of those things too. Who knows what we have out there now that we're going to look at in 20, 30, 40 years and be like, what were these people thinking doing this yeah. themselves? <laughs> but you know, it's, but yeah, I mean, it's crazy to look at now and think that that was, that was okay. It's a hot thing. Yeah. Man. It's an interesting time too. Cause it's, you know, you're talking about the, the 1910s and the 1920s and you know, you're getting into sort of like the roaring twenties and stuff like yep. that. And now I'm picturing like, you know, party people painting their <laughs> flappers and, and glowing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> So, I mean, that's when they first started doing medical exams on these radium girls, they the researchers started noticing, you know, not only were their lips and mouth infected and not infected, but laced with radium, their mouths were glowing, their clothing was glowing, their under underwear, underclothing was glowing. You know, it, it this stuff just made its way everywhere into you and onto you. And you were you were radioactive, and that was it. And at that point, there's there's really nothing you can do about it. But yeah, they they started noticing it was getting everywhere, places you didn't want it to go that you weren't intentionally putting it there. It was still getting there. I might have read this wrong, but I think what I had read was when radium got into the bloodstream, it almost looked at it as calcium. Correct. Yeah. All right, and then what happens is the blood wants to put that into the bones. That's my as scientific way as i can say it but what if that just goes in <laughs> it just shoots it in there you know That's but <laughs> i was like when i read that i was like oh my god like i mean just yeah, so directly into the 
into the yeah, and once it's there, it's it's stable and it's bonded. So you know your bones are made of calcium, right? Calcium carbonate, and any basic science student knows that. Now, if you've taken a chemistry class, any of the listeners out there, radium behaves very similar to calcium because it's in the same group on the periodic table. It has the same number of valence electrons, so chemically it reacts the same way. So when your body ingests radium, it looks at it as as oh yeah, this is this is used as calcium. It's the same thing. So it can replace the calcium in your bones, which by itself is not a bad thing. But the byproduct of that is that radium is radioactive and it's, it's yeah. giving off radiation in your bones, which is destroying your bones, right? Yeah. If it wasn't radioactive, it, it wouldn't be as bad. It would still be deadly, probably, but not as, as bad as what radiation, radium poisoning is. We saw the same effect, by the way, with strontium in the, the 1950s and 1960s. When nuclear power plants were springing up all over the country, strontium-90 is a, is a nuclear waste product. And strontium also is a group 2 metal. It behaves very similar to calcium. And when strontium was leaking into the groundwater and going up through the food chain, it was getting into milk and, and dairy products. And they started noticing people living around nuclear power plants were getting food from ranches around nuclear power plants started getting osteoporosis. They were losing their bone mass. Yeah. And strontium was going into their bones instead, too. So, yeah. Unfortunately, this stuff still happens. It's, you know? Yeah. And when you say it bonds to the to the bone, the what I think about is so the isotope. I think the, the girls were using, there was two of them. There was radium-226 and then radium-228. But the, the yeah. radium-226 has... A half life of sixteen thousand years, or no, sixteen hundred years. Sixteen hundred years, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> that means that the bones are still infected right now. They're still seeing effects, yes, of the rate, and they will continue to, yes, until yep. it until it dissipates. And that's insane to me to think about. Yeah, this this is the the major drawback of radiation in general is. There's nothing you can do to slow it down, to stop it, to get rid of it. Once it's there, it's going to be radioactive for as long as it needs to be. There's nothing you can do about that because it's not a uh, it's not a chemical reaction you're dealing with. It's a nuclear reaction, which right. is a different thing. And you know, you could try to block it, you could shield yourself from it and things like that. That's all well and good. But like I said, there's nothing we can do to actually stop radioactive decay. So once you are radioactive, you're radioactive. And that, that's it. You know, we're all exposed to a little bit here and there. Nothing, you know, dangerous or deadly. Radiation is very normal around us all the time. It's just that when you're exposed to constant high levels of it in any industry or in any any sense, that's when the the, the bad things start happening. All right. Since we now we know a little bit of how this works, let's get into the story of the radium girls because this is really interesting because. The significance of their story is that, I don't want to say more than what they went through, but they, they really had a profound impact later on, on things like workers' rights or industrial safety regulations and, and, and just public awareness of any of these kinds of occupational hazards. You know, So, that, that's kind of their legacy from all this. And it really starts in, I want to say, 1917 when the United States Radium Corporation 
opens up in Orange, New Jersey. And that was, I think that was the first plant or first factory? I believe so. I believe that's the first. And then there was one in Illinois in the early 20s and then one in Waterbury, Connecticut. So the story obviously starts there. And the thing about this story is at first they really didn't know that, that they were exposed to this kind of danger and putting their workers through this. But it's what happens as it goes on that gets... Well, you're getting cover-ups. Yeah, uh, it gets very corporate. I want to say corporate espionage, but it's not that. Corporate malfeasance. Yeah. So, it's starting in 1917. I believe that the work is on the watches there. But they weren't just exposed to this stuff. They actually had that technique that they used that made it even worse, where they were putting the paint on their lips to straighten out the brush. And this way you had a fine little point when you brushed the, the watches or dials or whatever you were doing, but they were literally ingesting it. That's the big difference. Yeah. Yeah. They weren't just exposed to it. They were ingesting. Yeah. So I want to say the first case starts about three years after the plants are opening that the girls start to notice things. Yeah, the first issues that started coming up were dental issues. Girls losing their teeth, uh, losing pieces of their jawbone, developing lesions in their mouth. Like we said, this was their first the first exposure. They were getting it in their in their lips and in their mouth. And of course, it was traveling through the body, but this is where we first started seeing problems. Yeah. So it was, it was a dentist first who started noticing all these young women are having, you know, jaw issues and and losing their teeth and they're young girls there's something wrong with us yeah some of it was very very i mean it's tough to read some of the stuff that was happening yeah it started off as pain and then they would have some kind of posture ooze and i mean there was a story the dentist went to pull the tooth and pulled part of the jawbone out it's just yeah yeah it's extremely graphic and the whole time the united states radium corporation was Basically saying it was due to something else. Mostly syphilis. That's what they said. <laughs> that was one of the things, yeah. That was what they said, yeah. Well, you know, you know, it's very interesting, and, and you read about them. A lot of the things that they did, you'll see a lot of that stuff today, where they employed their own scientists to research it. This way they could go out to the public. You know, it wouldn't be different than, you know, Coke trying to say that we have scientists here who say that Coke is perfectly healthy and it drank in moderate amounts or whatever, <laughs> you know, or you see it with, you know, climate stuff all the time. Uh, the oil industry or the oil industry. Yeah. The one I kept going back to when I was reading about this was the tobacco industry. This, this is the tobacco industry in the 1920s. I mean, it's the same story. Yeah. Man. The same exact story. Yeah. Where um, they know. They just, yep. they know. Except we still use tobacco today. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? They don't, we don't use radium anymore, but <laughs> yeah. we're still using tobacco. <laughs> yeah, that's true too. Yeah, that's you can, you can purchase any scientist you want, any doctors you want, and you can come up with whatever studies you want and say, hey, you know, this, this stuff is totally fine. Radium is totally safe. It's invigorating. It helps cure cancer. It's this, it's that. It's not it's not causing these these women to lose their teeth and lose their jawbones and, and stuff like that. It can't be that stuff, you know? Yeah, and I had read that there were some scientists who were questioning radium. Not in in fact I think I read Mary Curie was was questioning it as well. 
Yes, they were um, one of the first ones. Saying that overexposure is an issue, but they were getting silenced by the bigger corporations who obviously the weight of their bank account and <laughs> could go to the media and pay their scientists and things like that. So that's a good distinction with the tobacco company because tobacco knew for years that yeah. that, that was an issue. I've read similar things with sugar too. Yeah, sugar yeah. try to cover up that. They were causing obesity for years and years and years. <laughs> Can't be. Drinking a liter of soda is totally normal. <laughs> It'll wake you up. That's all. <laughs> Everything's a miracle drug. It's a miracle drug. Yeah. So one thing, you know, the one piece I found I came across that was interesting was, yeah, the Curies started talking about maybe, you know, this stuff has its place, but maybe it isn't as safe as we think it is. And because radium was being used in everything we just talked about, the price of radium went up astronomically to the point that Marie Curie couldn't even purchase it anymore for her own research. She's the one who discovered it. She wins a Nobel Prize for discovering it, and uh, she wants to continue her research, and she can't afford it. She can't even buy it anymore, which is crazy. So this stuff was, this was like the hot item. People were making it, and the price of it was just prohibited. Unless you were a huge corporation. Nobody could personally get this stuff. You had to be a corporation to have the finances to extract it and make it. Where were they extracting it from? So what they do is they, they mine uranium ore mm. called uranotite or calcolite. I think I'm saying that one right. And they start extracting the elements from it. So you can't just dig radium out of the ground. It, it, it's extracted right. from a mineral. You need about 400 metric tons of uranium to get one gram of radium. So it's a lot, a lot, a lot of work. You're doing a lot of, you know, processing and refinement and extraction just to get a little, 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 little bit of yeah. this radium product. It's crazy. And they discovered that, I'm trying to think of how it got, I, I understood, I understand that there was x-rays and rays that came off. Like, how did they figure that out, where it was coming, and then figuring out to extract it from there? Their actual methods, I don't know how they physically did okay. it. But <laughs> they were, yeah, it, I'm sure that gets deep into the science of it, which even I don't know about. Yeah. They took the uranium ore, they were able to separate the elements from the ore and get different ones. You know, just going through different processes of separation. And then they extracted this new one, and that was that was radium. And they said, oh, this is the really radioactive one, is radium. So it is natural. It is out there. You know, we, right. we should say that. It's, it's just such a small, 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 small amount of it. You know, you're not going to run into problems if you if you picked up a, a, a rock off the ground. Right. The amount of radium in it is not anything dangerous or anything like that. So... The danger comes after it's extracted and processed. That's where it becomes an issue, where it could get into the soil and into your food, into your crops, into your water supply and things like that. But just being in the ground is is not the issue. It's the extraction and and use of it. Yeah, because you're isolating it, basically. It's the same with, you know, not to get too off here, but when you extract uranium-235 to make a nuclear bomb, well, there's uranium-235 in the rocks in the ground. It's just such a small, small amount of it that if you picked up a rock, that doesn't mean you have the ingredients for a nuclear weapon. You have to extract yeah. all that stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. Maybe. It's the same idea. And we have to point out, too, it wasn't really the watches or the instrument dials 
that were causing the problems. This stuff was functional equipment and you could wear a wristwatch and it wasn't really an issue because it was such a small, small amount of radium in that paint. But if you were one of these workers and you were licking your paintbrushes, you were exposed over and over and over and over and over again. And that's where the, the accumulation built up. You yeah. know what I mean? So it's not like everyone who bought a watch was getting cancer. That wasn't happening. Yeah. That's why the story is focused on the factory workers. Yeah. Well, it's just repeated exposure. And the way they were paid, they were actually paid very well mm-hmm. considering back in the day. I think they made like $2,000 a year. But yeah, that forty. I think it was $40,000 to today's standards or something. But, you know, it was good pay back then. But the other issue was they didn't get paid hourly. They get They got paid by production. So the incentive there is to is to produce as fast as you can and you're just constantly ingesting this this radium and it was it was the repeated exposure like you said it's not the small thing I mean it's scary to hear about probably later on like yeah. I'm wearing a watch that was you know, yeah. <laughs> laced with something you know you're thinking like an atomic bomb is on your arm or something but <laughs> it's but it, yeah it was the repeated exposure and, and things like that. Were there any other uh, – obviously, it was it was in everything, and we hear this story because of just how influential it was for workers' rights and things like that. Were there other stories of the time that you heard about, any kind of other factories who had any issues or anything like that? Well, my research said <clears throat> that it started in Jersey with the Orange Factory. They were the radium girls. They were titled that when they actually brought this this case to court. And then it started leaking over to Illinois, Canada. I think it focused mostly in the Jersey plant. That was really the hot issue, the hot place. But there were there were factories all over North America doing this. U.S. Radium was the big one. There was something called, I think, Radium Corp. They were doing the same thing. So they were just that. a different company. You know, so this this leaked over into other places too, for sure. Mm. Obviously, then after a while, they realize. That they all have the same issues in common and they can't work. A lot of the girls, they have to, they're forced to, to quit. They're forced to seek medical attention, which they were all in debt. And then they have a lot of issues later on as far as trying to get compensated for what happened. There was a lot of lawyers who wouldn't take the case, you know, go up against a big corporation like that. And there wasn't, I guess, any kind of real proof of what was going on. It was still so new. It ended up being that they settled for such a meager amount. They realized the the odds were stacked against them. A lot of them settled for like a thousand dollars. Which was was still a good payday back then. But yeah, but it was something because the, the problem with going up against a corporation. And and again, this goes back to big tobacco too. If, If you're, on a death sentence, if, if you're going to die and you're trying to sue a corporation, all they have to do is wait, wait you out, you, out. Yeah. you know, and I, I hate saying it, but really that's the mentality of it is like, they'll just keep pushing the litigation until you, you can't fight anymore either because you're broke, you're, you know, you're dead in the ground and, and then the case is out. So I think after this, this case went on for about two or three years in the courts, and the girls started realizing, like, this is the best we're going to get. We we got to take something because this is just going to keep going on. And they eventually did settle. 
I know you said a thousand. I saw some that said about ten thousand at the time, yeah, which was still, you know an, a tremendous amount of money for the nineteen twenties. But the sad part was most of these girls died shortly after anyway. You know what I mean? It was they got a settlement from it. They got a little bit of money to pay whatever they could, but then they eventually just did, they died anyway. Yeah, you know, I think about that time period and. I think I saw the first cases. They were building the cases as early as, you know, 1927. And I'm thinking about that time. And you don't, you know, it's it's right before the Great Depression. We don't really have a social safety net in place for people yet. I don't think we have unemployment insurance until 32 or 35. Uh So, you know, their only means of trying to get any compensation is through litigation. Yeah. And like you said, now you're going up against you know, big, I don't know what they would call them back then, but you know, big some fat big, cats yeah, or big, something. Yeah. 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 Big fat cats. Yeah. And that's the sad part about it is, and, and these girls were young teenagers, early twenties, very, very young. And they're fighting these huge corporations, multi-million dollar corporations. And like you said, there were no lawyers that wanted to take it on. It was too scary. It was, it was a, a lost case. And eventually, they got some help from some lawyers that, that thought they could take this on. And just like any, you know, the tobacco industry, again, the my podcast, we discover, we discussed the NFL and the CTE cases and stuff like mm-hmm. that. The same idea is that you're not denying that these people have conditions. You, you can show that the conditions are real. It's just proving how does, how did radium cause this? Yeah. You have no proof of that. You know what I mean? Just like the NFL was like, yeah, you have CTE, but how do we know football caused the CTE? It was the same argument. So that's what their lawyers were doing. They were saying, oh, yeah, these these girls have these conditions, but they probably have syphilis. And syphilis shows these same conditions. And that was more of a derogatory thing at the time as well. Right. But it's just like that's their strategy is like, how do you prove radium is doing this? There really there wasn't a lot of research into that at that time. Yeah, that makes sense because you're talking about taking some kind of measurements for radium inhalation and and excretion or or whatever you want to call it. I don't think they started I want to say it was an MIT who gathered the evidence. They started looking at it. I think it started in 1933 and they didn't really take they didn't really have good data until the early 40s on it. Yeah. To to really know. And yeah. unfortunately it's you know a lot of history is like that. Uh, and it's yeah. exactly what you said. It's like how do you prove you know, you have you have the correlation there, but how do you prove the causation? Causation, exactly. Yep, that's the the ultimate problem in in all of science and in, in law too. I guess there was one research team that was actually hired by U.S. Radium, and they were the the husband and wife team, the Drinker team out of Harvard, hmm. and they wanted to do a medical study on the radium effects of workers. But the problem was U.S. Radium p- purchased that research; they owned the rights to it. And the research showed it. It showed that radium does have ill effects. It, it can cause these problems. There should be protective measures. There should be exposure limits, all these kinds of things. But eventually it came out that U.S. radium had that report and was was stifling it, was keeping it under the wraps. They didn't want anybody to know about that. And because they own it, they could just keep it under the wraps, right? right? It's, it's yep. their property or whatever you want to call it. Intellectual property, unfortunately. Yep. That is the danger of purchased research or corporate research when it is outside of well even when it is in academia you could still run into some issues on you know what you want to get out and don't want to get out but 
any good scientist knows that the research leads you to where it leads you. And that's it. If it doesn't lead where you want, it doesn't matter. It's still publishable results. They didn't go defunct until 1970. I was trying to figure out when they were finally out of business. Well, they stopped using radium in like the late 60s, 70s. I don't know how long these companies lasted. Right. Uh, but yeah, radium did last that long. The uses of radium were, were still going. I mean, not so much medically anymore, not so much cosmetically, really, but they were using it in the warplanes in World War II. Yeah. Uh, they were using that. it in the instrument dials and stuff like that, definitely. You know, you talk about they did the study and they knew the results. I think it got brought up in some of the court cases later on that, you know, the factory was right there and they did know this was happening because the people who were working directly with it were wearing leather and picking it up with tongs and things like that. Anything to keep the exposure down. And then when the women got it, they just were like, hey, just put it in your mouth and (laughs) have fun. (laughs) Just enjoy. Yeah. And that's where it becomes, you get almost sick to your stomach feeling because they they knew what was going on at that point. You know, in the beginning, it's just they, they had no clue and like you said, they're making a lot of money and there's no direct correlation. But th- at some point, when you know the correlation, it becomes evil at yeah. that point. Yeah. Then so. you're talking, yeah, that's where we get into the the workplace, uh, workers' rights and stuff like that. Yeah, now you have a corporation that knows this is dangerous. They know medically what, it, what it's doing. They have evidence of it. And now they're just choosing to cover it up, to not protect their workers, to expose their workers more, incentivize them, right? They're getting paid per dial. So incentivize them to use it more even. That's that's where we start getting evil. You're right. That's a good word for it. Yeah. Well, I mean, throughout history, I, I think we do that now. I mean, it's a little off the topic. The way, I mean, it's partly just how the economy is set up, you know, to incentivize as much money or as much profit or get the stock prices as high. You tend to... I don't know if people are directly evil who who do a lot of these things, but I think that they, you know, give themselves an out in their mind that just business or, well, we didn't have any direct proof that this was happening or, or stuff like that. It's, I guess, it's plausible deniability or whatever you want to call it, but it's, they're still, they're still well, it's, in, it's evil. It's the basis of, of big business, of capitalism, too. It's, yeah. it's like... You could be a hard worker. If you work harder and you produce more, you get paid more. Right. So maybe it's dangerous. Maybe it'll affect this health or that health. Maybe it'll stop you from seeing your family because you're going to work 12, 14 hour days. But if you work more, you're going to make more. So we we definitely still incentivize that. Maybe we're not putting people in as much danger, but we still have that American mentality, right? That if the more you work, the more you're going to make. And yeah the better worker be you are by doing that. Yeah. This is, I see since COVID people questioning that a little bit more, you know, about (laughs) wanting to be home with the family and and do things like that. And even the younger generation a little bit, just because, you know, I think a lot of that comes down to what they saw their parents go through. Yeah. And then, you know, like, even for me, you watch your father, you know, miss games and stuff like that because it was, that was that was the thing to do. Hard yep. worker, and that's what we appreciate in this country. And then it's turn 55, 56, and they're like, you know, here's a package. We're going to hire the younger guy. And I think a lot of yeah, people saw that. One. Saw that, yeah, and that's so where the question state. comes, you know? Yep. 
But it's interesting. So the five radium girls were able to obtain a diagnosis of radiation poisoning, but the obstacle they faced was how to claim relief. And at the time, workers' compensation had a statute that contained an exclusive listing of what they could get compensation for as far as occupational diseases. And this included anthrax, lead, mercury, phosphorus, wood, alcohol poisoning, but radiation poisoning was not included. Mm. So that's why they had to try to go through common law to get compensated. Yeah, it was still so new at the well, time. I was there say, there was nothing on the books for it, right? Yeah. I was going to say, obviously, when they write these policies, the wording, it's all about the language in there. Right. And it's funny because a lot of these things, from what I've read anyway, the language can be both very direct and very indirect. You know, like they want to catch all for them and then they want some direct also, though, like this, where, you know, we don't have radiation poisoning listed. Yeah, radium poisoning is not yeah. in, our, in our contract. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it, 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 that's interesting, too, how it, that would later change laws now where it's, you know, exposure to toxic substances. Well, actually, it's still problematic. You know, there was some issues even with COVID and things like that because there's a lot of exclusions in, in policies, not just for businesses. Workers' comp had some coverage for that, but general liability and things like that. Because sure. uh, what insurance policy or what business in 2020, on March 12th, 2020, yeah. what business had in place a plan for a global plant pandemic? You yeah. know what I mean? Like it was... It was unheard of since the 1920s, too. So right. once March 13th hit, they're like, oh, shit, now, like, how do we, how, what are the rights? Is it your right to stay home? Do we have to make you come to work? Like, what do we do? And I remember everyone arguing about this and that. And I'm like, well, nobody knows what to do. That's, I don't, I didn't think it was malicious at the time. I, I really thought it was like, nobody knows how this is supposed to work. Yeah. This is the basis now. We are setting the standard now, you know? Yep. And it was kind of the same. Well, it was very mm -hmm. interesting because in New Jersey, they wanted to try to force the insurers to pay out what they call business income claims. And, you know, that'll cover things like loss of business income, but it also covers workers' wages up to a certain amount of time. But, you know, this kind of stuff was always not included. Any kind of diseases or injury is usually not going to be in there unless you, they, there's cases with like gross negligence and things like that right. maybe which is you know it's hard to prove and but it usually would go off into a, a compensation claim where you get your payout but here they were telling perfectly healthy people right now to stay home and not work and new jersey was trying to force their hands and the insurers are like we could go to court because every year we send up the policies to you that we're putting out and you rubber stamp them every year with this in yeah. there. So I don't know what case he got. And they were right. There was nothing they could do about it, you know? And then, like you said, you're talking about a case where nobody could expect. I mean, can you imagine just throwing that on insurance carriers? How many of them would be probably yeah. out of business at that point? So it was such a, such a crazy time. Yeah. You know, I actually had started a new job that week. It was amazing. <laughs> all exciting right <laughs> yeah well so i was in between i gave my two weeks at one employer and they just let me they paid me and let me go and i was like this is the best thank you and then i was starting on that monday i want to say that was the yeah the 13th or whatever 
but I think it was it was March was it March sixth or seventh that you know President Trump was on there talking about it, and I remember being like, "Do I have a job on Monday? What am I going to do here?" <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm so worried. Yeah, and working in the school system, you know, yeah, of course it was nice to be home. I'm not, I'm not going to deny that. It was also it was yeah. crazy, but really it was like, what do we do? How do we handle yeah. this? And and my school was changing the requirements every week, every two weeks. And I remember other teachers fighting and complaining. And I was like, listen, nobody knows what the hell is going on. Like I, I didn't view it as, you know, the fat cats in the, in the, in the higher ups, like yeah, it was different. coming down on us. It was like, they're trying to figure this out too. We don't know what the fuck to do. Nobody yeah. knows what's going on now. I, I know we're off topic, but yes, <laughs> I do promise me entering conversation. That's so. great. No, I love it. <laughs> Because then when you do shift back and you, you do have a company that it's like, okay, we know this is bad for you. We know this is killing you, but we're going to cover it up and you're going to still work. Yeah. That's a whole different ball game. You know, that's a whole different story. Yeah. No, it, listen, it was, it, that was, that was just a, a weird, weird, strange time. And you're right with the schools too. Cause I remember my kids, I mean, and my oldest son loved it. He was he was done by you know because they just gave him work to do and then he was done by like ten or eleven and he'd be on playing video games or he'd take a nap and do whatever. I remember my daughter's day was done in seven minutes once she had to do nice. some work and I was like, "Don't you? Aren't you supposed to be in class?" She was like, "No, I finished." I was like, "In seven minutes?" She was like, "Yeah, that's all I had to do." And it got a little better next year when they did it. You know, they had yeah, a little, a little more, more figured out. Well, they had the whole summer to figure to try to yeah. figure something out, but. <laughs> Jeez, uh, that, was, that was some wild times. I guess I don't. I don't know what they did. You know, nineteen eighteen. When was it? Is that when they had the Spanish flu? Is it nineteen eighteen or nineteen? Oh yeah, like nineteen 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 twenty. Yeah, around yeah. that. Yeah. Like that. I wonder if they. Yeah. Did. How did they handle I, education? I, how did they handle business? How? Do, I, who knows? Who I knows mean, that? I guess it was a little different because if you if you dropped out of school in fourth grade, it wasn't that weird. Yeah, it wasn't big twenty. Right, you're homeschooled anyway, right? So. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting one to look up. But getting back on topic, I read something interesting about these girls that they actually looked to them when they started shaping up the procedures for the Manhattan Project. Yes, I came across that too. Yeah, I didn't get um, deep into it. I wanted to get a little bit. That's what I mean. You could like research this one for forever because yeah. there's just so many... It's like a big web that goes everywhere. But I thought that was interesting, too, that they knew enough by that point that, you know, how to handle these kinds of elements and things like that. So, you know, I mean, it's not a little bit of time, but it's like 20, 25 years out from whenever. Yeah, uh, Manhattan Project started in 43, 42, 43. So, yeah, you're talking about maybe 20 or so years. And during all this time, like, this is when radioactive, or I should say nuclear physics, nuclear chemistry is booming, no pun, pun intended. And they're learning just more and more and more every day until the Manhattan Project, where it was like, okay, can we put this together and, and actually make a weapon out of this? And it was Einstein's idea, even though he didn't want to do it. He said, yeah, Germany can do this. We shouldn't do it. We Everyone should stop it because it's going to be yeah. devastating. And all FDR here is, is like, oh, well, Germany's going to do it, so we're going to do it. We're going to stop Germany. And, yeah. and Einstein's like, no, like nobody should be doing this. But still, yeah, like you said, they learned how to handle the stuff and work with it. 
but and I, and I teach this to my class, and I, and I hate to sound cold about this, but the detonations on Hiroshima and Nagasaki were still experimental things. They didn't. They knew what the explosion would be, maybe, but they didn't know about the after effects. They didn't know about fifty years, sixty, seventy yeah. years. You know, they, that was that was not the intention. The intention was: can we just make a big bomb to destroy the city and end, end the this war? war? Yeah, that's it. You know. <clears throat> So take that as you want, however the listener wants to hear that. But like the after effects, that was not really understood until it happened. Yeah. Um, well, that's why, you know, when you question the move a little bit, too, you should you, you kind of do have to take that into consideration. We we have, you know, looking at history, we get to to see what happened 20 years after to the kids who were born who lived through this and, you know, all the radiation burns and things like that, the ugly stuff you saw on TV. I want to say that wasn't really studied or looked at until the 60s. They realized a lot of the, the things that happened after that. Yep. I mean, you could still, I guess, question dropping the two bomb, something like that on two cities. But I guess the thought process was we were at war for so long. Yep. Europe's destroyed at that point. It's shattered. They're, they're not really able. They were supposed to help us, but there was really no way they were going to help us with that war. We'd fought that war for a number of years now to kind of a, a stalemate because we were fighting the Germans at the same time, you know. And there was talk out there that if we would have invaded, it would be another like five or ten million um, American soldiers dead. At that yeah. point. So, the idea was, well, let's just end this thing now. There's yeah. always talk, too, that we wanted to so show the Soviets what we had. but Yeah, yeah. The the, the other reasoning and the and the ethic, I mean, let's put the radiation aside for a second. If And when, when the Manhattan Project happened, but even at the Manhattan Project at Trinity, all those scientists, Oppenheimer included, they all said, like, listen, forget about the radiation part this bomb is just way too big for anybody to use it's gonna it's gonna destroy the world if you just have a few of these we're gonna just annihilate the planet they weren't even concerned about the radiation part it was just the the magnitude of the explosion so on a military standpoint like you said it's just okay do we put more soldiers in do we fight more do we lose another million people or do we just drop these bombs and just devastate two cities and kill 100,000, 200,000 Japanese people? And that's what they chose to do. We're looking at it through the lens of history. We know the after effects. In 1945, they didn't know the after yeah, effects yeah. to that level. They just thought it would destroy the city. That's yeah. it. You know, and I'm not trying to defend them. I'm just saying this is, this no, is how it works. It's something it I, I think about that a lot. You know, I, I don't know. If I lived back then... By 1945, and I've already seen the things that happened in the world. I mean, some of these people lived through two world wars. When yeah. you think about it, yeah, you know, they just—if there was a way to end it quickly, especially, you know—that's that's the other thing too. Being from the United States, is we get to kind of stay out of. I mean, we we interject in them, but the population here is very lucky. They're more lucky than they realize because we don't get we don't get what. Even Europe, and you think about France and and England and what they went through, because you know they're they're part of the what you would call the civilized Western world, right? So to think about cities getting toppled like that is mind blowing to me, and probably now to the generations who live there, because 
we're we're at a point where World War II is going to be a hundred years soon. Hundred years yeah, old. Yeah. That's crazy. That is crazy. It's right? going to be a hundred years old soon. So a lot of these people haven't seen that either. But you know, we're we're lucky here in sure. the fact that we're insulated where we are. Yeah, that's my two cents on it. I don't know. No, no, I agree. <laughs> it's, you know, it, it's it's very hard for people to be objective about this stuff because people get so passionate about it. Yeah. And it is one of my favorite parts of history to discuss. And, I, and even as a scientist, I'm not trying to defend like, Oh yeah, we should have done this. I'm saying like at the time, this is what it was. The Manhattan project was, it was an experiment. That's what it yeah. was. It was an experiment to see if this would work and it did work. And they said, okay, it works. We shouldn't use it. And then the military takes over and is like, no, thank you. We're, we're taking it now. We're going to go use it. You know, yeah. that was a military action. That wasn't Oppenheimer's fault. That was the U.S. military. Yeah. Um, but again, it was just a standpoint of like, all right, let's let's just end this. We need to get out of this. We need to save more lives and, and just be done with this. Yeah. Well, that's the weight mm-hmm. of, of what the decision is. And yeah. yeah. And um, <clears throat> yeah, you know, after all those years of warfare, you have the chance to bring some people home. You know, it's it's hard not to see what they were thinking. But you know, you go back to uh, Einstein. Yeah, he was actually a pacifist from Big time. what I understand. Big time. Yeah, uh, he has a great quote. At least it's attributed to him. I know not what weapons World War Three will be fought with, but World War Four will be fought with sticks and stones or something. Yes, like this <laughs> is a great, a great, great yeah. way to put it. Yeah, he was such a pacifist and. When the Manhattan Project started, he was specifically left off of it. He was not allowed there. He was not allowed to work on it. He wasn't allowed to know parts about it because they thought he was going to sabotage it. They thought he was going to, you know, try to dismantle the, the weapon they built. Yeah. And he said, yeah, I'm, you know, if, if you let me there, I'm going to do that. So he wanted no part of it anyway. But yeah, this, this was the early 1920s, 30s, 40s. This is what was going on. Like nuclear physics was taking off and and then you want to go post manhattan project then you get into the nuclear energy nuclear power plants and that's a a whole other ball game but it seems like you know getting back to our original point this stuff (laughs) i know we got way off here this stuff is first coming out it's a it's a cure-all it's a miracle then slowly we start learning like oh maybe it causes cancer maybe it does this maybe it does that and then we shift to something else. I'm like, maybe it's doing this too. And then we shift to something else. Oh, maybe it's having this effect. And that's the nature of science. That's the nature of progress. We get a new thing and then we use it. It's great. It's awesome. And then we start seeing, oh, maybe maybe it has some problems. Maybe it's doing this or doing that. Do you see anything like that nowadays? Is there anything out there in the science community that they're kind of questioning right now as far as the use of? I know that's a that's a hard yeah, question. To that's ask. a hard question. There are lots of things, and and I'm sure you can get millions of answers. You know, some things off the top of my head would be AI for sure. AI is a oh, big well. big discussion. It has very good aspects, and it could be very bad too. Getting to more of like chemicals and stuff like that. This is debated back and forth, right? Aspartame as an artificial yeah. sweetener. You know, the vaping sticks, va- vaping cigarette, e-cigarettes versus regular cigarettes yeah all this kind of stuff yeah there are different ways to combat climate change that maybe are having different effects as well the problem nowadays i think is that 
everybody is discussing it. Yeah. Which maybe shouldn't be happening. Maybe we should leave it to the educated people. And I'm not saying myself. I'm no, saying, I agree with you. Know you know what I mean? I Any with idiot you. with a podcast can just start a. <laughs> I say that about myself sometimes. <laughs> all of us, man. All of us. Yeah, everyone has an opinion and everyone thinks they're right and everyone thinks they have the answer. And so everything's a problem. Yeah. Everything is a problem. I, honestly, that's one of the reasons I started this is because, you know. So I could talk about stuff like this because I don't really know everything, you know? So, but you're right. I think you would see it during the last few years, especially, you know, between, I don't know, where everybody falls as far as COVID and stuff like that. But it's just weird to me to question a scientist. (laughs) You know, somebody who studies (laughs) and, and spends their life and I mean, the things you're breaking down for me, I couldn't, you know, I get it because you're breaking it down for me. I could probably read it a hundred times and I'd be like, I don't know what is going on here. Actually, it was funny because one of your episodes, I remember laughing at Danny. You guys were talking about time travel. He must have asked you a question about it. And he's like, it's something like I say, yeah, and I like think I understand at the moment, but I have no clue what you're talking about. <laughs> And that's how I feel I <laughs> when I deal with science. And I remember laughing at that because I'm like, because I think you were explaining it. And I'm like, it sounds like it makes sense. But then I try to think about it. I still don't get it. <laughs> it makes no sense. Um, but I see that. I see that. I don't know if it's an anti-intellectual thing, but I, I see that a lot, you know. Um, well, you know, one of the key training tools of going through a science education and again i'm not i'm not you gave me a very good introduction and i I really appreciate that but i'm not trying to tout myself as like a a brilliant scientist or anything i went through the the ringer just like everybody else did i made my contributions and and that's that but one of the big things i've always taken away from my education that people really need to hear and really need to focus on is that you're not supposed to know everything you are supposed to question things which is fine but you should I hate to say research it because nowadays everyone's quote unquote researches everything that's, and they that's really the don't. problem. Yeah. Yeah. But like it's, if, if a, if a doctor comes to me and is like, Hey, you need to take this medicine for this reason, or you need to take this vaccine for this reason. He's a doctor. He knows something that I don't know. I'm going to trust that. You know, if, if he's my doctor for my whole life and, and I know him and, COVID is the big example, right? When people started saying like, oh no, the, the doctors have it wrong. Well, why the hell would the doctors have it wrong all of a sudden? Like that doesn't make any sense, you know? Yeah. It's okay to not know. It's okay to put your trust into somebody who knows more than you. And hopefully we get back to that at some point. I don't know. I Yeah, I don't know. I think one of the things the internet did, Googling whatever it is, is it gave... You know, everybody's like a, a pocket scientist, a pocket lawyer, I call them, because they just call pocket them. Pocket politician. I mean, I, listen, I, I'm not saying I don't do it myself. I tend to question things a little more than I think a lot of people. And I, I try to really, like, think through all the sides. And you know, that, that's not touting who I am. I'm just saying that, I, I, you know, people take the first thing they Google and, and run with it. And, and, you know, it should drive me nuts with what you're talking about with the vaccine because people are like, well, it's my body. I'll, I'll put what I want into it, you know, and stuff like that. And I'm like, oh, you know, 
you put McDonald's and other shit in your body. <laughs> like, I, I, like, do you ask, you know, I, I, when you buy McDonald's, are you asking what the hell they use in it? Cause it's some of the worst probably, sh- probably <laughs> shit you can put in your body. But I, I know it's like, that's a far comparison, but it's also not because it was more of a media issue. You know, I just didn't understand how that was like a loss of freedom or something, but you know, that's another subject. <laughs> yeah, you know, I know we can get yeah. very political with that too. I agree. Yeah. Um, my big thing with science in, in any standpoint with COVID or, you know, getting back to nuclear energy and, and radiation and stuff like that, you can have your feelings about it. You can have your opinions about what you, what vaccine you want to take and don't want to take. That's fine. But what I have a big problem with, and I don't think you should do is that you, you can't go around saying it doesn't work. That, that's yeah. an inaccuracy. You know what I mean? Like, vaccines work there is evidence of that you can't just go out and say no it doesn't yeah. you can say i don't want it that's fine you, you don't have to have it right. and and nuclear energy is another big thing where people are like well nuclear energy nuclear power plants are dangerous no they're not they are actually one of the safest sources of energy that's statistically proven yeah but just because you're scared of it and you don't like it that's okay but you can't just go out and say this thing just like people can't go out and say Climate change isn't happening. Yes, it is happening. There's evidence that it's happening. Yeah. If you want to debate the reasons and the and what we can do about it and stuff, that's fine. You can do that. But you can't just deny science. That's a problem. We are not going to progress as a society if that continues. Yeah. You know. No, I I totally agree with that, and that's where I leave it up to experts. You know, it's the same thing with the news. I had somebody on. We were talking about the Fox News settlement a while back, and he's a legal clerk, so he basically works for a judge and a good guy. But we were talking about as far as the dissemination of information, and and he made a good point that if you don't have these trusted sources, the idea is you can't know everything. It's what you're talking about. That's why you need some kind of source to break it down for you. And and we need trusted sources, whether it's science, whether it's in the media or anything else, people don't have the time to, to be an expert in everything. Yep. And right now that's where it's kind of scary is there's just not, well, the trust is just, been so depleted in this society in in so many ways you know politically economically societally i guess you could say civically whatever you want to talk about i get it i I understand that that disdain i guess for authority you people don't want to listen to politicians people don't want to listen to scientists people don't want to listen to doctors i get it i get it but you know part of being in a society is working together (laughs) and everybody having a role and everybody playing a part. And I think we're all just trying to live individually and acting like we can work together when we're all acting individually. That doesn't work. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You know, speaking of you talking about, I just did the Carlin episodes and one of his great things that he said, because obviously he was saying he views, he views this all from like a, all the way out in space, you know, he divorced himself from it, he said. But he had said that we put competition ahead of cooperation. And I always love that because I think that's a very good way to put I, it. I, I think competition moves us forward. Cooperation 
lets us survive. That's how we survive. You know, it's back in the hunter-gatherer days. The hunters got all the glory. The gatherers kept us alive <laughs> at some point, right? I mean. I like that. That's yeah. very true. Yeah. I did. So, I just, I do see that, that there's an imbalance of cooperation at most levels in society. Yeah. And I'm sure, you know, there are money issues. There are mm-hmm. Religious issues, but you know, choosing whether to believe in something or not believe in something. Yeah, I, I, I take the role as a scientist again, and I, and I just I try to step back from everything and say, okay, like what, what is the reality? What's going to work? What's not going to work? Of course, I have my opinions about things, mm-hmm. and as a teacher, I really try not to show opinions. Sometimes they come out, but my purpose is to educate you, and I'm like. Like we're doing this topic, I educate my students about nuclear energy. Whether they like it or don't like it, that's their choice, but I educate them about it and what it is and what it isn't. Those are just facts. Yeah. You know, Neil deGrasse Tyson has a, has a great quote where he says, The great thing about science is it's still true even if you don't believe it or if you don't like it or something yeah. like that. So, yeah, take, take what I'm saying and this is what it is. I'm not giving you my opinions about this stuff, this is the facts of it. Right. Whether you like them or not, it doesn't really matter. You know what I mean? Um, this is what stopped me from being a history teacher, by the way, because <laughs> yeah, it would just be an argument every day. Every day. <laughs> yeah. You know, there was there was a great science quote I saw somewhere, and I mean, they were more comparing it with religion, but I think you could do it with anything else. And they were saying, if you took all the books and you got rid of them, they were gone in about, you know, 10,000 years. You would find out the same things. You can't jump off the roof and not die from a certain height, you know. But the religion books or the other books would be different. The religious texts. That's, that's and, good. And stuff. I like that. Yeah, but I'm gonna start using that. Yeah, science is based in in fact, and it does change. I know I've had people argue with me that it's like, well, you know, they were wrong about this or that. And it's like I don't know if they were wrong or it just developed because the set of facts they had then with whatever the tools were or whatever they knew was true at the time. Even with something like this, with the radium girls, which I'm glad we can bring it back to that. Yes. <laughs> I no clue how I was getting back there. <laughs> you know, we were talking about it before. In the workplace, they had no clue in 1917 when they opened up that factory that that was going to happen, that the exposure to that would lead to whatever happened. But and it's unfortunate what happened here allowed that information to get into society, to get to the other scientists and to study it and look at it and figure out what was next. It didn't make the science untrue. I mean, it yeah. was true at the time. You know, more of the truth was that it lit up the, the dials. All that stuff was right. All that stuff. That was true, yeah. yeah. It was curing cancer, which was, it, it was a true was, thing. Exactly. It was curing yep. cancer. What they didn't know was that overexposure to it had some really horrific consequences at the end of the day. I mean, I don't think anybody could have saw those types of uh, consequences to the body. But, you know, it changed. No, and that's what science changed. is. Like you said, it, it's it's to use the term lightly, it's progress. It may not be good, but it is progress. Yeah. You come out with an idea, you test it, you see if it works, and then you see if something else disproves that or changes that or is better than that. And that's what scientific progress is. So it's not like 
you know, again, we look at this through the lens of history and we're like, oh, these guys were idiots. What were yeah. they doing? Like, they were an idiot. They didn't know any better. Yeah. This is what was happening. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And when, when cigarettes came out, cigarettes were great. Cigarettes were invigorating. Cigarettes were this and that. People didn't know at the time until, what was it, the 70s finally, the 80s? Yeah. And then they started getting the research about it. Yeah. Now, the sad part is today... People still use cigarettes. I know, <laughs> you know, and it's like that's a problem. You still see it? I know it's crazy. I remember even when the vapes first came out, they were trying to say it wasn't that bad for you. And I'm like, I don't know yeah. anything you ingest into your lungs that yeah, doesn't belong be, there. Is, be that good. is not going to be good for you. I mean, that's you know, maybe that's an opinion that I don't have <laughs> backed up. But I just you know, I looked at that and I was like, I don't know about that. Yeah. Well, I think nowadays again, we're, we're exposed to so much information that the good thing is we can start questioning and making some educated choices. And, and the bad thing is we question everything. We question things we shouldn't be questioning sometimes. And that's like we said before. But back to my point, scientific progress is that idea of doing something, using something, and then seeing what the result of it is. Can it change? Can it be better? Can it be worse? And then moving on from it. Yeah. It doesn't mean that somebody was wrong. It doesn't mean that they were stupid or whatever. It was just that was it at the time. Yeah. And in a in hundred years from now, they're going to look back at now and say, oh, how did they handle the pandemic? Oh, they shut down schools. That was stupid. Yeah, what were they crazy. thinking? Like, we didn't know any better. That's yeah. what we did. You yeah. know? <laughs> yeah. No, listen, it's fascinating. And I always try to put myself in that perspective you know, back then as well, because like you just said, it's very easy to just sit there and be like, well, that was, you know, that was dumb. I hear that all the time, you know, it's like, whatever, but you know, it'd be interesting to see where we are in the next hundred years. It'd be interesting. Like you're talking about with AI and stuff like that. I actually find that to be a really fascinating topic that I could probably go on forever with too, but that'll be interesting in the next couple of years. I'm always joking about our AI overlords. <laughs> Skynet or whatever comes for us. But well, I'll give you a quick example. Just this last school year, within a few months, honestly, the first inkling we had was students were using AI to mm. write reports for them. So, right? so the focus was, how do we stop AI? How do we block it? How do we check for it? How do we do this and that? Two months later at the next faculty meeting, it was like, oh, how as teachers can we use AI yeah. to help our teaching and to do this and change it? Like in the course of two months, it, it was like, it's the greatest thing in the world now. And now it's awesome. So that's how fast things are changing now. You know what I mean? But that's where it's interesting when you get into that balance of, of competition and cooperation. Cooperation with AI should be able to to help. I mean, it could help every individual leaps and bounds, right? I mean, it it could help people who aren't, I'm not a good writer or something. It helps. It shouldn't do your paperwork for you, but, you know, it could help you in in some sense or help you with understanding and and things like that. But the people who perfect this, they remember reading some, well, that'll be the first trillionaires. And that's a bad incentive. That's a really bad incentive because the, the amount of power you give somebody with a trillion dollars and with control over something like that is is just that's frightening. Yeah. So 
Yeah, so anyway, I'm going to wrap this up. But is there anything I didn't touch on here with the story that, that you could think of you want to add? or? Well, one of the biggest things to end the story that I mentioned to you before was the results, the court results of the Radium Girls court cases pretty much led to the formation of OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, yeah, which governs every workplace in America, which, which is a good thing. They are the people that or check the safety and health of your workplace. Whether, even if you're not working with radioactive material, wherever you work, OSHA is a part of it. And they are looking out for you because this case was the first time that an industry was held responsible for their workers' safety and well-being. That had never happened before. That was never a concern until the Radium Girls. So we have them to thank for that. Yeah. Well, there's so much we could touch on because it's just so many different stories. You guys should definitely still do that because there's just a lot of angles. There's a lot more to know. Yeah. But, hey, I want to thank you for, for coming on. And thank uh, you, sir. Letting me meander with you a little bit. It was fun. It was going places I didn't know we were going. But okay. <laughs> well, so it's funny. I do these things and I have like bullet points, and then I don't even use half the bullet points because I end up sure. going somewhere else. But you know, it was a lot of fun. But why don't you plug the show and whatever else you want to plug? You thank know? you. Uh, yeah, we are the story of podcast, and it is Instagram and Twitter at podcast story of. We are on a season two break right now, but you can catch up on seasons one and two of various historical, religious, conspiratorial topics, I guess. I don't know. A little bit of everything there. It was a great one with inventions, if I remember correctly. The inventions one was pretty good. <laughs> the odd jobs was a very I fun one. I like that one a lot. And uh, yeah. And Mr. Jay Burke here was was on with us. I did the invention, so that's the the shameless plug. The other inventions ones. We did like two inventions. Yeah. 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 I think the one we did was inventions that changed society that we didn't really think about. So I have so much information still on air conditioning. (laughs) And I'm like, I was thinking about doing some solo. Do a whole episode just on air conditioning. I really... I mean, it's it's ridiculous. But you know what you said that has stuck with me when we recorded and you said... You know, it changed the way that we we make houses, houses. and houses don't have ten foot ceilings. Now every house I go into, I look, I yeah. look at the windows. I'm like, oh my god, no, that blew my mind too when I read that. I was like, holy, I didn't think of that. And even with the porches, yeah. yep. the way the screened in porch, it's you know, I've been thinking about that a lot too because it's been you know it's been pretty warm over here. Yeah, it's been bad lately. Although apparently, when I talk to people from other sides of the country, they think we're always at sixty degrees or something. <laughs> Like it's summer, we have the sun. <laughs> We're not a little <laughs> We're not up in like one hour. Yeah, what are you talking about? So. All right, man. Well, thank you for coming on again. It was a good time. And, thank you so much. It was great. Yeah, I'll definitely be talking to you. So, yep. All right, take it easy. Thanks to everyone who took some time out of their day today to listen. The With Jay Burke Show is available wherever you find your favorite podcasts or go directly to jayburkshow.podbean.com and subscribe to get the latest episodes. I know it may not always be a straight line, but I hope we'll see you again to take the journey and escape a while for thoughtful excursions into the world of ideas across politics, technology, pop culture, and all realms of civic life. See you soon. Oh,
Everything stopped.